Hey, good morning, everybody. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and also John, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. If you want to file along, you can find it printed on page 5 of your bulletin. Early on the first day of that week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They, did still, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never belie. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Jesus, you love every person in this room. And you've brought every person here, not by accident, but for a purpose, including many other things, the hearing of the good news of Christ's resurrection. So I pray now that you would help us to hear resurrection news. That you would help us to believe in the God who makes a way when there is no way. A God who brings dead things back to life. Help us to see this God and be changed by him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus was crucified. He died and he was buried. But that wasn't the end of the story. We are here this Easter morning to celebrate and declare that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, it it was a miracle, a subversion of the natural order. These things don't just happen. Dead people normally stay dead. But sometimes when you feel utterly stuck or helpless, is that you today? When getting out or getting better feels impossible, when your back is constantly against the wall, you don't mind a little bit of subversion of what's natural or, or what's normal. When that's your condition, you, you'd, you'd be glad to welcome a miracle. I think the song from the Disney movie Encanto captures this sentiment well. I can't move the mountain. I can't make the flowers bloom. 
I can't take another night up in my room. I can't heal what's broken. Can't control the morning rain or a hurricane. Can't keep down the unspoken, invisible pain. Always waiting on a miracle. A miracle. Friends, this morning, what if that miracle that you've been waiting for has already happened. Jesus rose from the dead. This morning we're looking briefly at the Gospel of John and and here we observe three things about Christ's resurrection. First, we learn about its validity. Is the Christian account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus based on truth or reason? Or is it just religious fantasy, metaphor, or, or wishful thinking. We don't have time this morning for a full-length response to that very important question. In fact, if you're interested in hearing more about it, you may want to check out Can a Scientist Believe in the Resurrection? That's an article by N.T. Wright from Oxford University. You can Google that and find it. I'd commend it to you. Can a scientist believe in the resurrection? But I do want to point out a few things by way of explaining the validity, the truthfulness, the reliability of this proclamation of Christ's resurrection, a few things from today's text. As we're told, it was early Sunday morning before sunrise. Mary Magdalene didn't go back to Jesus' burial site because she was expecting a resurrection. She and the other women returned, why? To embalm Jesus' body with spices, as was the custom to do in those days. Something that they didn't have a chance to do on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, before the Sabbath began. And so here they are, returning to finish the job. And when she found that the large stone had been rolled away, that large rock and doorway that sealed the entrance of the tomb had been removed, she didn't say, ah, just as we expected. He's risen indeed. No, she didn't say that. Instead, she said, those punk soldiers stole his body. What are we going to do? Because that was the most reasonable explanation at first. Theft. The resurrection isn't based on pre-scientific people's primitive beliefs. Even in the worldview of ancient Jewish people, dead people normally stay dead. Another thing worth noting, on John, the self-proclaimed track star. Did you notice that? Now, by the way, John likes to refer to himself in the third person, the other disciple, the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, I, in reading this passage, used to think that John was just being a classic younger brother when he insists on mentioning in verse 4 that he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Right? Totally unnecessary detail, right? It has to be him bragging to the whole world. Why else would he include it? Actually, here's what he's doing. 
he's giving a careful, detailed, truthful account of who was first on the scene. You can imagine someone later on, maybe even years later on, asking, Peter, uh, so I heard you were the first to arrive at the tomb and see the strips of cloth where Jesus' body lay, right? And Peter says, well, well actually, no, 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 I got to tell you. I was the first to go all the way into the tomb and see the linens up close, but it was John who got there first. And John says, yeah, yeah, I, I was the one that got to the tomb first. I saw the entrance to the tomb wide open, and I bent over to peek in. So I was the first one to see the linen. See, Pete was the one the first to go in and actually see, see the linen, but I saw the linen, but just from the doorway. But actually, to be clear, even I wasn't the first one to find the tomb that had opened. That was Mary. And Mary steps in, and she says, yeah, I, I saw the stone had been removed, but I didn't go in. I didn't look in, to be honest. I was just freaked out. So I just started booking to tell the others what had happened. But when I came back later, I was the first one to see Jesus in person, risen and alive. So do you see how these details go? They're really spelling out the chronology of exactly who got there first, who saw what, who saw what details, who were the eyewitnesses that were giving testimony, and what is going on here in this passage. They are eyewitnesses, bearing witness, almost as if they were speaking to a news reporter or testifying in a court of law. In fact, it's the one reason, one of the reasons why the New Testament itself was written. See, the Christian belief in the resurrection of Christ, its validity is grounded in the testimony of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who themselves saw that the tomb was empty. Eyewitnesses who themselves saw Jesus himself shortly thereafter. Eyewitnesses who, who touched him, who, who talked with him, who were taught by him for four hours, 40 hours, 40 days before he ascended to heaven. Eyewitnesses who could have been challenged or even discredited with counter evidence. And yet for decades, nothing they said was ever proven to be factually untrue. Someone says, maybe they just made up the story. I mean, you know, maybe they just made it up and then they stuck with that story for many years. Listen, even today we see people who will ride out a knowing lie. But only up to a certain point, Right? They get sued for a boatload of money, or their lives are threatened, then the truth comes out. Except for John, who was exiled and in prison, do you know that every one of the original 12 eyewitnesses, the disciples of Jesus, every one of them were tortured and killed for bearing witness to this story of Christ's resurrection. They stuck to their story to the bitter end, which would then ignite a movement of faith, of hope, and of love 
that would change the world. Which brings us to our second point, moving from the resurrection's validity to its meaning. Its meaning. What did these eyewitnesses believe that the bodily resurrection of Jesus meant? Here's the meaning of the resurrection. Jesus defeated death. Not just for a moment, and not even just for himself. Jesus delivered a death blow to death itself. Follow me here. When Jesus died on the cross, he served the sentence only served the sentence that we should have served for our sin. It's what we deserve. He fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. And that's why the Apostle Peter preached in Acts 2.24 that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Why? Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The prison doors flew open. Death is the final curse for human sin. So having dealt decisively with sin on the cross, Jesus drained death of its power. So death no longer had a claim on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6, 9, since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. No more claim. No more power. Done. And so the apostle declares in 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ Jesus destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then again, he proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15.54, in the resin of Christ, resurrection of Christ, death has been swallowed up in victory. Are you hearing this? See, Jesus didn't just get personally resuscitated. He conquered death itself. When Jesus came out of the tomb, death went into the tomb. And so Athanasius of Alexandria from the 4th century called the resurrection of Christ the glorious monument to death's defeat. And then someone who is perhaps listening and thinking carefully immediately says, okay, that sounds good, but hold, hold, hold on here. What do you mean that death is conquered? People die every day. Seems alive and well to me. And now I get to retell one of my favorite stories. We're going back to Texas a few years ago where a man by the name of Milo Sutcliffe encountered a four-foot rattlesnake while doing yard work together with his wife. Imagine that. And so Mr. Sutcliffe does as any good Texan would have done. He quickly grabbed a shovel, slammed it down on top of the snake, 
and cut its head right off. Dead, right? And a few minutes later, as Mr. Sutcliffe bent over to pick up this dead snake, that decapitated snake head bit him, sunk its fangs into his hand, and injected loads of venom right into his body. Immediately, Mr. Sutcliffe began to experience seizures, loss of vision, internal bleeding. In fact, it got so bad that despite 26 doses of anti-venom, the doctors said he almost didn't make it. Now, good news, he made it. But tell me, when Mr. Sutcliffe took that snake's head right off, did he or did he not vanquish that foe? Oh, he did. But listen, just like that rattlesnake, death's head has been severed. Death's head has been decapitated, even though it continues to bite. Death wreaks havoc even today. But one day, here's good news, but one day when Christ returns, death will fully die and kill no more. Its severed head will finally lie limp, harming nothing and no one. But you see, only because the death blow the holy shovel, as it were, was already dealt in the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine this? In the resurrection, Jesus really did defeat death. This incredible event was the hinge of human history. It marks the breaking in of a whole new order. It requires almost a cosmic imagination to think that the healing of our dying and decaying world has in fact already been set in motion. Nothing's been the same since Christ rose from the dead. And this brings to our third and final lesson about the resurrection, its validity, it's based on eyewitness testimony, its meaning, the defeat of death, and now the resurrection's relevance. It's relevant to you and me. What are the massive implications of Christ's defeat of death for you and me? Now, if you we're reading the Gospel of John all the way through, and I would recommend that you do that, especially if you're new to the Christian faith. A wonderful starting point, the Gospel of John. If you were reading it all the way through, there's no way that you could come upon this passage and read about Jesus' resurrection in chapter 20 without being reminded of Jesus' words nine chapters earlier in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, which was also the latter part of our reading this morning. There, Jesus is speaking with Martha right after her brother Lazarus had died. 
And Jesus' well-known words extend this promise to us even today. Everything that God had done for Jesus in his resurrection, he promises to do for you. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus speaks these words to a people who desperately need hope. I'm talking about you and me. Because we live in a world of death and the threat of death, don't we? We groan with agony and frustration because bodies fail us. I've been thinking about this all week. You might have, know, might have noticed I'm limping a little bit this morning. Got a little problem with my big toe. Feeling a little bit like Shaq today, right? Can't walk, right? And I've been thinking all week, right? The body is falling apart. It's not what it used to be. Some of you have your own versions of it. Some of you all ain't laughing about it. We groan. And if we're honest, we'd agree with Hebrews 2.15 when it says that until Jesus sets us free, every one of us lives our lives enslaved by the fear of death. Which, of course, includes the fear of aging fears of injury and vulnerability and painful losses, grievous losses of all kinds. Truly, beloved, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are gutted by this epidemic of school shootings. We are anguished by the loss of loved ones. We are stunned by the cancer diagnoses of five beloved ones in our small community just in the last year alone. We're exhausted by the deadness all around us. What feels like dead or dying relationship or marriages, dead hearts, dead neighbors or neighborhoods. It's all too much. And be honest, how do you cope? How do you cope with it all? Too often we self-medicate with alcohol or sex or travel or adventure. We escape or distract ourselves with overwork or pornography or entertainment or whatever you do most on your smartphone. Anything to help us to feel alive or at least just not dead. The Bible gives us something more sure. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, Jesus isn't serving up feel-good religious platitudes. He's giving us relevant, rock-solid resurrection comfort and hope. What is it? Jesus promises us life after, life after death. Life after Life after death. He says, the one who believes in me will live, live again, even though they die. 
This is a promise of a resurrection that is coming to all who are united to Jesus. Whether you live or whether you die, regardless, when Jesus returns, you're going to be raised up just like he was. New bodies, immortality, life as it was meant to be lived, loving God and neighbor. This, is, of course, doesn't mean that Christ's followers won't experience physical death. We know that empirically not to be true. We all die. But what it does mean is that death is not the final chapter. What it does mean is that death doesn't have the last word. As the choir sang and prophesied to all of us, who has the final say? Jehovah, God has the final say. Not disease, not death, not dying, not division, not depression. Jehovah has the final say. And he's bringing life back again as he brings his son back into this world. You and I, anyone who is in Christ, will be physically raised back to life one day. But that's not all. Jesus also promises us life after death. Jesus says here, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Such is the promise of the resurrection spiritually. That even when you die, death has been so defanged, head cut off, that your experience of death has been radically transformed. Life will be yours even beyond the grave. The Apostle Paul, when reflecting upon his own passing in Philippians chapter 1, says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because he knew that upon dying, it wouldn't mark the end of all things. It wouldn't mark the loss of all things. It would mean the beginning of the rest of his perfected life with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the community of saints that were raised up together with him. He knew that dying would be for him the doorway to eternal life, a portal to paradise. See, here's the promise. Those who are in Christ pass into heaven upon physically dying. And in this sense, they, you and I, will never truly die. One day your body may cease, but you will never cease, but will in fact truly live. This promise of heaven, of course, doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't feel sadness or grief at the prospect of, of death or the loss of loved ones to the power of death. Yes, that pain, that loss are very real. Right after Jesus preached these very words, in fact, he himself wept over Lazarus' death. Resurrection can be believed in at the same time that tears fall from your eyes. But here we can grieve with hope. Here we can look at even the, the greatest threats upon our lives with hope and confidence as the apostles did upon the threat of their own lives. The confidence that says, even though I die, I will never truly die. Jesus promises us also life before death. Life before death. 
the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. There's a living, there's a life that is given to us in Christ even before we die. This too is a kind of resurrection. The Bible calls it regeneration. It's the way where our dead souls are brought to life. No less truly than a corpse is physically raised from the dead, our senseless, numb, non-responsive hearts are suddenly ignited by God's Spirit. We suddenly see Jesus for who He is. We perceive and sense His love for us. We feel and, and smell the odiousness, the grotesqueness of our sin. We turn away from it. We turn towards God. We rejoice. Our feet dance a little differently. Our hearts leap a little bit differently. All because we've been brought alive. Alive in Christ. A joy of eternal life even on this side of death. This too is a promise of resurrection, that we are spiritually alive, alive to the love of God, alive to life itself with meaning and purpose. Don't you crave this? Instead of just giving in and acting like waking up with purposelessness and going to bed not knowing why all this is, is the way that it's meant to be. But no, life True life, even before death, given to us in Jesus, energizes us for a life of love and of hope and of power. In fact, because all these kinds of resurrection that we experience in Christ are true, we begin to see that we live new lives knowing that there's a sense in which we are indestructible. We begin, in fact, to be more willing to take risks of love to go places and to do things that we otherwise might have been too fearful to do, to dare to love in ways that we used to think might cost us too much, and so we avoided it, avoided them. If the resurrection is true for you, if it's really true that in Christ you will live even though you may die, and living in Him, you will never truly die. If these things are true for you, I want to ask you today, what will you do differently? Who will you love differently? How would you spend yourself with great resurrection risk if you knew you will never die but live? And live with resurrection hope. Resurrection hope means that if today you are weary of evil. If today you are weary of death. Or of injustice. Or of depression. Or of disease. Weary of disappointment. Of sin that plagues you. Resurrection hope means that you can catch your breath because evil has an expiration date. You can catch your breath because death has an expiration date. 
Injustice has an expiration date. Disease, the struggle against sin, depression, darkness has an expiration date. But you don't have an expiration date. You will never die because Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Life before death. Life after death. Life after life after death. All this, all this he gives you in himself and in his resurrection. Notice Jesus doesn't say, listen, I offer you, let me, let me go get it over here. Let me get it over here, some resurrection. He doesn't offer to give us resurrection. He himself is the resurrection, is true life. It's found in him. You want this? You want him. Resurrection is found by uniting yourself to him, by believing in him, by giving your life to him. And so we are left with a question. The same question that Jesus asked Martha in John eleven twenty six. 26. Do you believe this? See, we're told that John ran to the tomb. He went inside. And in verse 8, we're told that he saw and believed. Believing is the point. Believing is the invitation. Faith. Believing. Do you? Will you? He offers you victory over death. He offers you life itself. He offers you himself. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Give us resurrection faith, resurrection hope, and resurrection love to the glory of our risen Savior Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.